Hello, my name is David Oakes, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a monthly podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether a swimmer within a river's flow, or a poet watching the autumnal leaves blow, I get to talk with people who are dedicated to, or are inspired by, our natural world. This month I head down to Lyme Regis, where, sheltering from the much-needed rain, I speak with nature writer, biologist and activist, Dr. Amy Jane Beer. As you will shortly hear, Amy is an active participant of both the Right to Roam movement and the New Networks for Nature Alliance. The former hopes to unlock the physical, mental and indeed spiritual health benefits attained through the easy access to green spaces. And the latter explores how creative inspiration can be drawn from our British wildlife, both of which are perfectly epitomised by Amy's writings. Her words can be found, and I hope she won't mind me saying this, almost anywhere naturey. They are within the British Wildlife magazine, and they are within the Guardian's Country Diary, and most recently, they are within her new book, The Flow, which explores our relationships with Britain's numerous wild water ways. And so, what better way to start than by discussing what exactly a modern nature writer is, and what qualifications you need to become one. So, without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Dr. Amy Jane Beer. In the depth of the forest, an old oak grew, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. A friend of mine on Twitter was talking the other day about how in the olden days in bookshops there would be a selection of natural history, mm. um, normally just sort of one one sort of column of shelves and that was it. And then maybe a decade ago something called nature writing turned up and over the last sort of five years especially that nature writing column has got larger and larger mm. and natural history has become one shelf at the bottom of mm. that. Mm. Um, I guess my question is where do you fall into that? Are you natural history or are you now a nature writer? Um, initially very much natural history. You know, I grew up very keen on nature. Then I studied biology. My PhD was, was biology. The neural um, development of sea urchin yes. larvae. <laughs> yes, there's not a lot of call for me to talk about that these days for okay, some reason. But <laughs> well, in which case, let's start with that. What's the most interesting thing about the neural development of sea urchin oh, larvae? Well, it all stems from the fact that as they develop, they go through a really dramatic metamorphosis. Uh-huh. I mean, probably more dramatic than, you know, you can imagine the caterpillar of the butterfly, that's the classic one, or the, or the tadpole into the frog. But at least with those vertebrates and, and those bilaterally symmetrical animals, there is a sort of structure where there's a, a kind of a front end, a head, and mm-hmm. a body that comes off that. But with something like a sea urchin or a starfish, they, they're radially symmetrical. So they have a very different body organisation to most other animals, except when they're larvae. Um, so their larvae are bilaterally symmetrical and the adults are radially symmetrical. And if you think about trying to organise a body in terms of the nervous system that controls it, how do you, how do you transform from, from one system sure. to another? So my PhD was looking at how on earth that happens. And, and how, how do they do that? Um, well, um, this has question, got very niche. It's got very niche very quickly. There's, there's 1% of my listeners <laughs> yes, going, going, yes, finally. <laughs> Echinoderm neurobiology, woof, what we've been waiting for. So um, there's a very small portion of the larval nervous system that actually survives in the adult, and it's that associated with the gut. So really the, the gut, the neural net that surrounds the gut is pretty much the only part that survives. The rest of it is just kind of completely reorganised. And in the case of sea urchins, the, the adult grows in a sort of pocket in the side of the lava and then on one dramatic day it erupts out a bit like you know the alien erupting out of John Hurt's chest um, and turns the whole body inside out and then that new adult nervous system takes over so it's pretty cool that's very cool yeah um, pretty dramatic but in terms of studying it you spend a long time staring down microscopes Um, do you miss that no (laughs) (laughs) I felt I needed to go through that process of of seeing how research was done to have some credibility in terms of writing about science. Communicating science was what I wanted to do. Sure. And so the doctorate was kind of a way to, to understand how, how that happened. Did you always know then that urchins were going to lead to a more general approach then? Yes, I think so. I don't think I really ever intended to stay studying them. Urchins. But yeah, I was always... I, I started writing more seriously while I was doing my PhD um, just to earn a bit of pocket sure. money. 
Um, and so I realised then that this was something that you know I could get paid to do. What do you think about now then, where you do have generalists coming into it writing simply about experience and encounter mm. as opposed to a scientific background? It's different kind of. It's perfectly valid, but it's uh-huh. a different. You know, that's uh, thank goodness we're all different. So, um, so I guess I do bring a lot of my scientific background when I'm you know, when I'm trying to write accurately. You know, I do. I do do the research. I do try and stick to the the realms of of truth. But about five, six, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago, actually, I started trying to write more, or, or giving myself permission to write more, kind of open heartedly, and to write about m- how I felt about nature as well okay. as trying to just report information. Does that information. does that coincide with the country diary stuff for the Guardian? Um, that? that came yes. That was that came fairly soon afterwards. But the. Yeah, the trigger for me was this organisation called New Networks for Nature where, that I went along to as a, as a delegate for a few times. A friend of mine, Ben Hoare, who that, back then was one of the editors at BBC Wildlife mm-hmm. magazine, he said, you should come to this, you'd love it. And I, and I did, and it was around the time I'd started reading some new nature writing and thinking, oh, wow, there is, this is something I could do or, or that people are doing. And I was, I was slightly in awe of, you know, the Robert McFarlane type, you know, he was, he was probably one of the first of the new nature writers that I, that I read. And he's, because he's very um, generous at recommending and, and sharing the work mm-hmm. of others, he really acted as a kind of hub from which I kind of started to explore that, that genre a bit more and read more widely. I think there's um, going to be some kind of hierarchical diagram mm. of everyone that Robert inspired the people that inspired him, whether it be J.A. Baker or Nan mm. Shepard or whoever, mm. the people who inspired them. It'd be fascinating to see that sort of tree of life as it evolved yeah, yeah. and therefore to see how nature writing in itself has shifted over the years. Yeah, over definitely. Decades. I think you could, yeah, you could do a spider diagram where there are, there are hubs and, um, and he's, he's definitely one. Um, so where is New Networks for Nature based? Um, we move around. Okay. So back then we'd done several years at um, Stanford Arts Centre, but now we, we, we're mobile. So this year's event is going to be in York. Okay. Um, in November. Last year we were in Bath. Next year we'll be in um, Norfolk. So to try and make it accessible to, to a few more people, really. Okay. But going along there, it was just some, this realisation that, that there was this creative side to, to appreciating nature and to communicating what it meant. I thought, maybe I'll have to go at that. And, and it was just like a light bulb coming on, sure. really. Like, oh, I can write from my heart as well as from my, my head. It's that thing when you, I mean, to go back to the sea urchins, you're describing things as having bilateral or radial symmetry. These are visual things. They're not mm-hmm. scientific mm-hmm. terms as in solely alone. They have to be seen, absorbed. And I mean, if anybody sees anything with a radial symmetry, they're normally stunned by its beauty from the yes. get-go. Yes. Um, so to look at science purely from a non-artistic perspective is almost impossible. By the very nature of us being humans, you have to... You would think that, but I think for a long time, science was sort of asking us to do that. I... I was very creative and imaginative as a child and then in my teens took the options to study just sciences at A-level and to a large extent it felt like doors closed to a more creative and imaginative way of working. I remember being... Because of um, education at the time? I think so, yeah. I mean, and I went, when I went to uni, when I was studying biology, which was in the 90s, early 90s, I used to love the, the labs where we were just drawing, where we were just looking at specimens and drawing. But I remember being um, given some quite—I guess it was intended to be constructive feedback, but quite st- stern feedback that you know my drawings were beautiful, but um, but there was there was style over substance, you know sure. this sort of thing. Um, like, so Thank I was you very always, much. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, and the same with writing my thesis. Um, one of the um, <laughs> one of the examiners I had for my thesis was. Um, he was the external examiner and his main criticism, he really didn't like it, I don't think. He said he'd written in a journalistic style, to which, which he meant, basically, I, I'd, I'd written it in a, in a style which anyone could understand. And I thought, well, what's the point in not? You know, uh-huh. Why would you write something that someone coming to it fresh wouldn't have a clue what you were, what you were talking about? Yeah. So I, w- I wanted my thesis to be something that if someone... One, for some strange reason, was interested in the neural development of sea urchins. Who wouldn't pick be? it up. Like I, I had my mum in mind, really. Sure. She should be able to pick that up and start on page one and understand what I'd done and why I'd done it and why I thought it was worth doing. Uh-huh. And the idea that you would write science in any other way seemed really baffling to me. Mm. 
Right, sorry to interrupt Amy's flow, but this seems the suitable moment to plug another podcast, one that, weekly, aims to do exactly what Amy has just championed. Why would one talk about science if not to make it accessible? The New Scientist Weekly is the flagship podcast from the world's most popular weekly science and technology magazine. I have subscribed to the magazine for years, which is why I can tell you the difference between a quack and a quark. A duck can survive very happily without quacks, but a duck would be nothing without quarks. The New Scientist Weekly podcast discusses all of the most pressing scientific breakthroughs, regularly covers the natural sciences and latest climate crisis developments, and will also tell you exactly what 4,500-year-old fossil poo can teach us about the people who built Stonehenge. All of that, and one of their hosts, is named after a tree. What is not to love? Just search for New Scientist Weekly in your podcast player of choice and you'll finally have something to listen to each week whilst I'm off air. No more pining for the first Tuesday of each new month and the latest episode of Trees A Crowd. And with that, back to Amy. Okay, so you've mentioned your mum and your GCSEs. But you refer to yourself as being an army brat and moving about quite a lot as a mm. kid. So where was childhood? Was it always on bases? Where, where Mostly, it? yes. So I was born in Germany. We did a couple of post-tours of duty in Northern Ireland in the late 70s. And then it was back to Germany again um, for three years. And then home for and three years in Warminster on the edge of Salisbury Plain where we had... And that's, that's I think, where the the love of nature really kicked in um, we had an extraordinary amount of freedom my sister and I I think partly because we were on a base I think my, my parents felt although there was a lot of you know there was a lot of risk but it was physical risk mm-hmm. rather than the stranger danger kind of risk yeah, yeah. Um, because we were behind a gate I think um, we were allowed the kind of freedom that I imagine you know kids would have had Back in, in previous day. generations yeah, yeah. Um, which for two little girls I think stood us in really good stead because I've, as I've grown up I've realised how unusual that is and, and the fact that now I'm still pretty much willing to go anywhere by myself um, and I don't have a fear of new places I'm fairly self-reliant and I think that probably all stems back to those those years of just being out all day And So if, if that's where the adventure in you starts is that also where the natural historian starts? Definitely, yeah, definitely you know, What do you my, remember your first sort of Salisbury Plain encounter? I remember finding a tawny owl that had fallen out of its nest, a fled- or, or pre-fledgling, a premature fledgling. Tawny owls do this, they fall out of their nests all the time. They, and their parents aren't very good at... Uh, well, they, the pa- parents are quite diligent, but, um, but yeah, the, the fledglings are, or the nestlings are a bit dim. <laughs> <laughs> owls, are, owls have this reputation for being wise, smart birds, and they're really, they're really not, and tawnies particularly. So, yes, coming across this little bundle of grey draggled feather and fluff with big eyes and thinking what on earth is this creature mm. it's just because they were sort of it was sort of spherical um a bit like it was around the time that the gremlins came out so it, was, <laughs> it had this sort of gremlin charm to it you know big eyes and a round gizmo, body. gizmo the, yeah. yes so yeah that was a, that was a big memory the flowers as we playing was great or still is quite I think it's because it's relatively undisturbed apart mm. from you know all the military ordnance going off all the yeah, time yeah. it's it's undeveloped I mean, I'm from Salisbury as well. I don't know if you know that. And there's um, Leif for Sweden, who's um, yeah. who's also from the same school as me. I think. Oh, really? I think he was, but he sort of found his love of botany and horticulture mm. through Salisbury Plain and the orchids that you can find mm. in and around. And it is kind of amazing. But because of that, there's an interesting dichotomy that I was going to not touch on quite yet, but we might as well as we're here, which is that you spend quite a lot of time now talking about the right to roam movement and yes. access to yes. to private lands and in inverted mm. commas. Do you see that there's an irony to the fact that your love of nature stemmed from a childhood spent within a confine, within fences? Um, hadn't really thought of it like that, but it did. I did have, I did have access. I had that that privilege of of a right to roam, and, and look what it did to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, I can't imagine how we're supposed to develop a society that has the love and the care and the respect for nature that nature deserves without access to it and without you know genuine access not you know not permission to visit a nature reserve to go on a guided tour to go on an open day you know it needs to be permission to go when you feel you want to go and to do what you feel you want to do even if that's just lying under a tree and sleeping all day those are the things that our current 
system of access, the current limited access we do have, those large areas of access land are too far from where most people live. They're, they're not close to cities. They're not within walking distance of home. For most people, they may have access to a footpath yeah. or, a, or a public bridleway, but, but that's not somewhere you can just go and hang out. Sure. You, you don't have... Um, it's a right to, to, to move through a landscape, but, but it's not a right to, to linger or to, to explore sure. in, the, in the way that, that I had. So um, I want every child to have that opportunity. It's not going to be for everybody. No. So this idea that the countryside will suddenly be completely overrun and every wildflower meadow will be trampled sure. is it, just nonsense. But for those people who are captivated by it, um, then that opportunity is, is amazing compost. Um, for, for nurturing and cultivating the naturalists and the activists of the future. I think that if I've got my statistics right, there's only 8% of the UK land that is actually officially open to the mm, public. That's right. And most of that is access land on, on the high moors. It's, uh-huh. it's upland. Um, so by definition, it's the land that wasn't really being used for it was, wasn't developed um the agriculture was very kind of low intensity already so a lot of it is is, is moorland mm-hmm. a lot of it is in national parks already so there was pressure to open up the national parks more and make them you know, sure. m- more accessible um but nature shouldn't be something that you have to go on holiday for or travel a long way for it, it we should have you know everyone should have the ability to walk out of their home and within a few minutes be surrounded by green space, by wild space. Um, Why? Well, the science on the, the, the physical and mental health benefits mm. of access to nature, are, of, of contact with nature, are it just, it's just piling up. I mean, there's, there's, there's really no counter evidence um, to that. We, we know that it's good for us. Um, in terms of our physical health, we have a, a physical and, and mental health crisis in this country, obesity crisis, particularly in, chil- in children, childhood obesity is, is dreadful and, and mental health is dreadful and nature will help all of those things. Just the exercise angle, the, the opportunity to know that there's a world bigger than your cares and your sure. worries, I think is, is comforting in terms of our emotional well-being and the, and the chemistry of, of, of being in a green place. You know, sure. plants, plants are releasing all the time these, these volatile organic compounds which boost our immune system in multiple ways there's, you, there's no downside no I mean I, I, I mean I, I completely agree with you so I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate mm. a, a bit there's um there was a lot of worry going on in the Lake District around Elterwater and about too many tourists going because there is a limited amount of land that's open and that people want to go on a holiday Do you, are you worried that if the country was opened up if the world was opened up and everybody went into it and humankind kept on spreading that we might be causing more damage than good um, there are places that are very ecologically sensitive, uh-huh. and I think there is a, there is a, definitely a case for some kind of zoning, where you know by mutual agreement um, we decide to to, to not totally go there. Agree. But such quite as often, you think in Galapagosy kind of places, um, or well, I'm just thinking in this country really. Okay. Um, but quite often those places are actually very difficult to access naturally sure. anyway. So nature's actually very good at creating no-go zones of her own. You know, mm-hmm. one of the, within the Right to Roam campaign, the, the, the main areas we're, we're asking for access to are, are rivers, woodland um, and, and greenbelt. And in a woodland, for example, if you want to step off a well-used path, then quite often you'll find yourself, you know, you're way blocked by, by brambles, by thorns, by yeah. impenetrable vegetation. And Sometimes so, it's hard enough to go down official rights of way, well, let indeed, alone... Well, indeed. So nature is very good at creating space for herself um where where we just don't go because it's bloody uncomfortable you know um Mm. so i think we can we can trust to a certain extent particularly if we're wilding more landscapes allowing nature to just do her own thing um there will be huge areas that are naturally very difficult to access Mm -hmm. and it will be it will be the kind of really hardcore naturalists maybe that want to go there um but it's not going to they're not going to be trampled by thousands of people the pressure on those the sites that you're describing in, for example, the Lake District, are a symptom of lack of access elsewhere, sure. rather than a reason to to deny access elsewhere. I think people go to those places because they're signposted. There there are a million guidebooks and websites telling you that this is a beautiful place to go, but adjacent to that very accessible land, that very well known land, there are vast, vast you know, acreages of mm. private land which are equally beautiful that we don't have access to. 
So there would be a massive dilution effect if we were given this wider right to roam. Um, Are you, the the penultimate chapter of your book explores, is it Hell's Dyke? Hell Gill. Hell Gill, that's Mm. it. Which is also a place that Roger Deakin didn't quite manage Mm. to get himself to go down when he wrote uh, Waterlogged. Are you worried that you might have increased the tourist footfall to that particular spot? <laughs> that particular spot. Because your writing I, made me want to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, certainly Roger's writing made me want to go. So sure. I don't think I've done anything worse than um, uh, th- than Roger did in that sense. But I did think about it, uh-huh. um, particularly as it's a place that in the wrong water levels or in high water levels could would be lethal. Uh-huh. And so I did think, you know, particularly, you know, having lost people on rivers myself, I did uh-huh. think, am I encouraging people to go there? who might be unprepared, who might be risking themselves, or you know, who might be posing a risk to the environment. I hope that in the book I've made it fairly clear that it's, a, it's a, not a place to go lightly. Sure. It's well known. I haven't kind of revealed it from a, an unknown hidden gem to somewhere that um, is suddenly very accessible. Well, is um, there, in which case, is there an encounter, spiritual, natural, historical, that you would have wanted to include within your latest book but chose not to? I'm, I'm not asking where no, it is, but is I'm, there? I'm sometimes asked where my favourite places are, um, or, or my favourite secret places are, and I said, well, it wouldn't be secret sure. anymore if I had mentioned it. So yeah, there are a few places, particularly places I've camped, uh-huh. that I am either a little vague about or, or, or just don't mention. Yeah, It's nice to have places that feel secret, because having a strong personal relationship with a place, that, that can only be a good thing, I think. Even if, you know, I sometimes see particularly youngsters in an environment and they might be doing all those things that, that we're told are reasons for not allowing people access. So they're, 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 they're lighting fires, they're leaving litter, they're being noisy. But they're young. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're, they're growing up. And which of us wasn't an idiot when we were in our teens? But those places, I think, get into the blood. And if those kids spend two or three years being idiots but then spend the next 40 or 50 loving those places and advocating for them and touching when they see young youngsters <laughs> you know in future then i think that's that's possibly a you know a fair exchange you've got to learn some way and learning on your own terms learn, learning through making mistakes is the most powerful powerful way isn't it i think also there's one encounter that you describe in your book with some youths sort of discarding fag packets and bit when in better terms than that <laughs> but it being described as a symptom of the fact that they had nowhere else to go. Mm, mm. And it's kind of wonderful that nature does provide that escape mm. for those that don't have anywhere within mm. society to go to. It always has. I mean, you know, we, we live in a society now where we're used to the idea that everyone has their own space, um, their own home, their own you know, bedroom. But, but in years gone by, you know, families would live in tiny houses, packed in, you know, you'd have families of, families of 10 living in a three-bedroom cottage mm-hmm. um, and no one had private space. So, you know, you would go to the woods for privacy. You know, how do those families have 10 children? How do those couples have 10 children when they've got a house full of sure. other ones? They went to the woods to make babies. <laughs> so, the, the, <laughs> so the woods have been a place for, for privacy sure. for a really long time. And when you're channeled along a public right of way through a wood, you don't get that. Even if the people you meet, the encounters you meet, are all entirely friendly and welcoming, there's a steady stream of people just greeting you. You don't have the headspace. So a lot of the time when I'm trespassing, I will hop over a fence, disappear into the woods, maybe only you know 10 or 15 metres off a public right of way mm-hmm. to find somewhere where I'm alone and I know I'm not going to be interrupted and it's not because I'm up to no good I just want that headspace and to get headspace I need physical space do you get a thrill from trespassing um I get a a little adrenaline rush stepping over you know transgressing Mm -hmm. um but it's not one I enjoy it's not what I you know that's not I'm not doing it you know I used to throw myself off waterfalls for a for a thrill that was definitely deliberate um but the yeah the, the the little kind of tingle I get from trespassing now is I'd much rather it wasn't there. Sure. Um, it's just being aware that just by existing in that place, my right to breathe that air could be challenged by someone that comes along and is hostile to me. And because I'm usually on my own, um, and the challenger will nearly always be a man, mm-hmm. um, that that adds an extra layer of anxiety, which I try to make light of. I don't want it to be there, so I 
push it down constantly. But it's always there. It's always there. And why should it be? I'm not. I'm, I'm literally doing no harm. In fact, I'm usually doing some good for that sure. space. You know, I always pick up litter when I see it. I record the wildlife. I share what I've learned. Hopefully, I share the love as well. Yes, I might trample the odd plant. Sure. Um, but that's what species do. They interact. You know. Do you feel because, as you say, most private landowners and indeed most people who work agricultural land are male that you as a woman have to have a greater responsibility to transgress to move the right throne forward i i probably do um because i am the kind of person who the the more i'm told no the more injustice i feel that the more determined i am to push back not in a not in an aggressive way but it's a i guess it's a stubbornness that makes me think that this isn't right so I, i have to push back because this isn't the way I want the world to be. Sure. And that's, well, that's activism, isn't it? It's, yeah. It, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not an extrovert. I don't want confrontation. I don't want to be challenged. But, you know, I'm 51. Um, and at some point in your life, you have to think, well, I've lived this way for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there are, I can see how life could be better sure. for the, the Amy's of the future. And if I can do something about that, uh, whether whether that's you know climate activism or, or or campaigning for nature, or campaigning for a right to roam, if you can see something needs doing, then the right thing to do is to do it. Did you become a greater campaigner and an advocate for change when you became a mother? Um, probably, yeah. You become much more future facing as a parent, I think. Yeah. Um, also, Did also more anxious for a lot of years, and partly because of losing my friend Kate on a river quite soon after we'd had children, I was became very risk averse mm-hmm. um, and very um, not just in, in my life physically but in terms of you know what what I could read what I could watch you know suddenly films that I enjoyed I just you know violence I couldn't bear any of it for for a lot of years uh, now now I've gone back and now, <laughs> now I'll watch anything well, this but, is uh, one of the, the questions I wanted to ask is, is I mean in part do you think that's a chemical change that happens to a woman when they go through the process of having a child but also do you think it's a societal thing whereby we have manifested a, a culture where women and mothers are denied, denied access to adventurous things, denied access to nature, denied access in some ways to society because it's such a patriarchal top-down structure? Mm. And if so, what would you do to try and manifest a world whereby you, as a parent, let alone as a woman, but also as a woman, make it more accessible to you? How would you make the world Mm. Open I think I think the sort of mothering instinct is one of the most powerful. It's powerfully protective, but it's also um, I've been thinking about this quite a lot lately. I think, um, and I, by, by mothering, I mean a set of a suite of behaviours. I mean, you don't have to be a mother to exhibit those behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't even have to be um, a child bearer. You don't have to be a woman. Um, I think anyone can behave in a way that is nurturing, that is protective, and I think it would be a great model for conservation, partly because it doesn't have those necessarily it doesn't necessarily have those kind of overtones of control that you have in a patriarchal approach, but also because in mothering the the natural way of things, you know, if things take their ideal course as a mother, at some point you you know you're not going to be there anymore for your mm. child. You know, that's that's life. You know, we're all mortal, and so part of it is acknowledging that you. Yes, you need to protect. Yes, you need to raise this person um, to a point where they are independent, where they don't need you anymore. And that strikes me as a really good analogy for how we need to think about conservation. And it ties in with rewilding, in that rewilding is acknowledging that you don't have to be part of it. Mm -hmm. There's not this need for us always to be there managing nature. Nature can manage herself really well. To extend your metaphor of being a parent and being a parent to nature and allowing rewilding to exist, therefore, should we be actively removing ourselves? At what point do we choose a world where we exist in? You're simultaneously suggesting that human beings benefit so much from access to nature, but also suggesting that nature needs to exist in a world without us. No, without us exerting control over it. Okay. So we, we can't, I mean... You can envisage a world without humans after in some kind of post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. future, um, and you know everything else will be fine without us. But while we exist, we are we are part of nature. It's just this idea that we should be the ones with 
dominion over it. Mm-hmm. That's that's the problematic part. Um, that nature somehow needs us to manage, to tweak, to tidy, to control. Well, one of the big ones from your book is about tidying up mm. the waterworks. It's mm. about the amount of sewage that we're dumping into our waterways I think got it down as 3.1 million hours of free-flowing raw sewage being dropped into the water that was in 2020 Mm. we've also got leaks going out of our human-made water system of 3 billion litres leaking daily Mm. there's a lot that we need to do to clear up what we're doing wrong before Mm. we can genuinely get to a stage where we can let nature sort of take over yes we need to stop we need to stop um, polluting it we need to stop trashing it Um, but nature isn't extraordinarily resilient and some of our damage, nature will heal. I've read, um, have you read Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake? Mm-hmm. So some of the, the extraordinary fungal biology that he describes there, the way that fungi can break down or can, can use radioactivity as an as a energy source. Nature has so many solutions up her sleeve, the inventiveness. So, so yes, we should clear up after ourselves. Of course we should. But whether we have to do that in advance of some kind of stepping back some kind of re- to allow rewilding to happen i'm not sure that's necessarily true okay. um it, it just may not happen in a way that is considered appropriate or, or tidy when you see these um areas that have where people have for whatever reason stepped back the way nature takes over is mind-blowing and it may not suit our idea of what a beautiful natural landscape should look like but when you see an area of a city that's maybe been devastated been abandoned and nature taking over mm-hmm. there, you know, nature doesn't care what it looks like, yeah. and it finds solutions. It finds cracks in the yeah. in the concrete um, to just start making that change. Do you think we would have better access to nature, whether it be on land or on our waterways, if more of the politicians were women? Probably, <laughs> probably. There are there are women of all political persuasions. I've had some conversations with, with female landowners who are, you know, vehemently opposed to um, to access on their land. There are also female conservationists, quite a few of them, who have this strong idea, it's sort of hair-shirty, this idea that we've done so much damage to nature that we, you know, we, we don't deserve it anymore almost, um, and that nature, wherever we go, we do so much damage uh, that we have to stay away from everything. You know, I've, been, I've been told on social media, I've been berated by, by a woman for eating blackberry that a vole could have eaten. I mean, it, 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 that's an extreme example, but... But Was it, it a male happen. or a female Voldo? <laughs> Good question. Um, but just this, this, this concern, and I understand the eco-anxiety, I really mm-hmm. do, but this idea that um, we have to sever our links with nature in order to save it, I think is bleak um, in the extreme and disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we don't see ourselves as integral to nature, then where does the motivation come from to save it? Um, let's talk about rivers, as your your new book, Flow, is is not just about rivers, but it's about wildness and and the, the passage of information and experience and nature through all of our lives. So the three favourite things that I took from your book were, one, that I didn't know why Somerset was called Somerset, despite the fact that I live in Somerset, which is because it was a settlement of the summer because it was completely flooded, which I did know during the wintertime, but never made the connection. That's my, fa- my favourite fact. Second favourite fact, the fish of hares that can sense the flow of water. I thought was incredible and thirdly I just love the fact that you describe a larch as Rod Stewart so those are my three favourite things about the book what were the three favourite things that you discovered about waterways and wildness whilst you were writing oh golly just three Um, well I guess the big one um, and it is the big one for for any any study of water is the is the connectivity Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that it's you know it's the same old water going round connecting every ecosystem on earth pretty much um so a river the idea that a river doesn't ever really end you know we're taught early on that rivers you know start in the uplands um, where rain falls and gathers and runs downhill and enters the sea and that's the end of the river but it's you know it's really not because that water continues on and sooner or later it's going to it's going to come back round whether it's gone through glaciers through deep ocean abysses mm-hmm. um through the atmosphere through groundwater um it is still the same water that's been on the planet for billions of years so that's definitely the, the big favorite thing that the kind of mind-blowing 
fact of it all. There's the great John Muir quote that you give, which is, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Yeah, I nearly didn't include that quote because it's it's so often quoted, mm-hmm. um, but it's so perfect. Yeah. It really is. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of my favourites. This idea of atmospheric rivers was, was new to me. And really, it's just a new way of describing or thinking about the, the transport of vapour through the atmosphere. A slight distinction water vapour is the stuff up there in the atmosphere that we that we can't see mm-hmm. um, clouds are actually tiny tiny little droplets of water so that that's liquid clouds are made of droplets of liquid water so there is vastly more water in the atmosphere than we can see and it's moving in in currents in streams from the tropics into the into the higher latitudes at the rate of you know billions of litres a year a day and this, this, this term, atmospheric river, has been coined to describe these, these flows, which are the sort of... They're, they're, they're as much part of the river system as the water in a river channel. Sure. Um, they're bringing water to the high ground where it tends to precipitate. And from there it may go... It may go into a river channel, it may go into the roots of a tree, it may go deep and underground and not return for half a million years. But it's all flowing. It's all still flowing. Are you jealous of the, it? <laughs> And its ability to go anywhere and be yeah, anything. Yeah, because the smile change. you've got on your face when you're describing well, its, it's journey beautiful. is... Well, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful journey. And, the, yeah, the change, that sort of links to one of my other favourite things about water is the way that we've interpreted that even before we knew the science. Mm-hmm. You know, the stories that were told, the myths that were told about water were always... Or the sort of the beings that came from water, the, the monsters, the the mermaids, the uh, What's the, the Japanese deities. cucumber one? <laughs> <laughs> the kaffa. That's the one. They're vicious. <laughs> the vicious kaffa. I remember I, there was um, I was in a sushi restaurant and they had a, I think it was called a kappa nigiri and they'd named it after the cucumber sort of water mm. naiad, and I was like, no, they, they're really horrible. <laughs> they like are, if you'd looked yeah. into the folk story behind, it's not just that it's made from cucumber. Like no, they're, they're pretty brutal. Yeah. Yes, they're pretty kind of rapey, murderous creatures. I don't want sushi that's made from a, <laughs> no, a rapey, yeah. murderous creature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but um, but yeah, but they're all, but nearly all the water sort of beings that have been imagined. They have the properties of water. They have this sort of dualness to them. They're often, you know, they can appear beautiful or they can be or they can be horrific. And quite often they change from one to another. Quite often they're 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 shapeshifters or they're halflings. So a mermaid, for example, mm-hmm. has you know one end in, in one in the form of a, a humanoid, and and then this this fish tail. And that's that's what water is. You know, water changes state from liquid to solid to to, to a vapor um, within this very narrow band of temperatures. Which other you know other other compounds, other elements can do that, but not within the narrow band of mm-hmm. temperature that we see routinely. You know, in, in nature, and not so, so integral to life in all different no, forms. No, indeed, of... indeed. So um, so the sort of changeability and the the, the fact that water is is so um, necessary to life. It's so giving. It's so generous. But it's also murderous. You spend a fair amount of the book talking about chalk streams, which are wonderful and beautiful, and I'd love you to illuminate exactly what they are in a second. But also you talk about some of the adventures you've had kayaking in India. And it might sound like a strange question, but do you feel like a river in India is a different entity, even though they're connected to that of a river in the UK? Ecologically, yes, very different. Um, so the chalk rivers in, in England, most of which are in the southeast, although there's a few heading up through the Lincolnshire Wolds and into the Yorkshire Wolds, close to where I live, they are extraordinarily rare on a global, in global terms. Depending on how you count, um, there are around 200 chalk streams in the world. Mm-hmm. And of those, 180-ish are in this country. Um, and in a corner a of this country, it makes them special. Yes, makes and us it, special. It, oh, oh, it makes us special. Um, no, of course not. But, <laughs> but it does give us special responsibility, uh-huh. um, which we are abusing appallingly. It, it seems really kind of almost cruel that the um, chalk streams are concentrated in the southeast of England, which is also the most populated part of England, um, where rivers are under most pressure. But of course, it's not. That's not coincidence. Mm-hmm. You know, chalk landscapes are incredibly amenable to life. They're where our um, most ancient archaeology is concentrated. You know, they were always the places where the living was good because you could get, you know, high, high up on chalk ridges, chalk walls, were the easy transit routes where you were unlikely to get bogged down because the ground drained well. In amongst the chalk, there'd be a ready supply of flint, which was obviously a really crucial element. It was the element of the Stone Age that made, mm-hmm. you know, made the Stone Age possible. And then the water that trickles out of chalk aquifers is the, is the cleanest, the purest the most beautiful water on 
the planet. And the temperature is crucial as well. The temperature of a chalk spring tends to be a constant all year round. My um, memory is always of steam coming off them in the winter yeah, months. Yeah, they you do. You can always they, find them just by because looking it's, around. Yeah, because it's, you know, if you go there on a, on a really cold day where the temperature's around zero, then, yeah, they feel warm and they will steam and they, they look they look beautiful. But in summer, you know, they feel they feel incredibly cold because they're only 10 degrees and they so the, the water in other rivers, larger rivers, may have warmed up more sure. under the sun. So, yeah, that consistency um, and their reliability as flows made them incredibly attractive places to to live so yeah all that all that ancient archaeology all the the barrows the, the stone circles the hinges so many of them are concentrated around sure. chalk so people weren't only choosing to live there they were choosing to have their ceremonies there their rituals there they they understood that mm-hmm. these places were precious and significant when you visit them have you had ceremonies because i've read that that you've celebrated the summer and winter solstices do you personally how spiritual are you? I guess that's the question. That's, this book has changed me and okay. to a large extent. Um, so I was brought up at Church of England. My parents were religious. But then then, then science happened. And so through my Those sea urchins teens, have a lot to answer for. Well, I mean, before that even, <laughs> I was kind of, hang on a minute, young. You know, the, the, the sort of, the stories that I was being expected to believe just didn't hang together. Sure. Um, and so I then probably spent 25 years strongly <laughs> agnostic, if not atheist, um, but again, coming ra- back round now to think about nature in a more... I do think of it in, in more spiritual terms because what I feel the power of nature is, is it's the same thing I'm feeling that people who are religious and have a god mm-hmm. or many gods. It's the same feeling. God, nature, magic, they, they're the same thing now as, as far as I'm concerned. So whether you want to call it a religion or a spirituality... I don't think that matters too much. I think we get very hung up on defining and setting boundaries and sure. rules. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm definitely much more spiritual now and water has become part of that. Do you worship it in a way that isn't simply being surrounded by it? I do now, I think, yeah. I, particularly springs. I find them they are sacred, not because someone else has told me that or because I know that they've been worshipped for millennia. I just feel it. I just feel the the resilience of them, the fact that the water just keeps coming, that it is so pure. It feels like a gift from the universe. And that's what religion is, I think. It's just an acknowledgement that there is this this gift that we're living that's bigger, you know, it's something that's bigger than us. It's the bigger, big, biggest thing we're ever going to be given, mm-hmm. isn't it? Our, our lives and our, our experience. So, yeah, and bringing, bringing ceremony into it, you know, I've, I've, I've I've made friends with a lot of people who, who do value ceremony greatly mm-hmm. um, and it's touched me profoundly, um, their way of doing it. Um, just just pe- finding people who are willing to try and express what they feel for nature in, in, in those terms has been quite liberating for me and, yeah, I found it very touching, very beautiful and very enlightening. And it gives you it gives you enormous motivation, I think, to think in those terms. We'll do so much for love that sure. we won't do because we feel it's the right thing to do, or because we, we've been told to, or even because science tells us to. Um, you know, love is the most powerful motivation for for conservation, for activism, for for making a better future. It was one of the things I read. One of the counter arguments to the right to roam recent trespass. You'll have to tell me where it was. It was the Angerfield Estate, that yeah. That's the one. Um, somebody said that they agreed with the idea of right to roam, but that wearing um, celebratory costumes and singing and dancing were not the way to do it because it would people th- people would think that you were hippies doing their thing mm. and that you were mm. being silly and that you're sort of playing mm. down the thing. Mm. I mean, you're shouting the opposite, which is that you need to celebrate, you need to love to do it, and that is the core message to get through. Of course. I'm not saying everyone should take up Morris dancing um, <laughs> by any stretch, but the people that were there that day, that day was pure joy. Mm-hmm. It, was an, it, was a, it was just a celebration of, of community, of nature, of heritage, um, of tradition. Um, but not all our trespasses are, are like that. You know, the, the previous weekend, there'd been a trespass that was a botany field trip, basically. Sure. Um, and future actions that we've got coming up they're going to be they'll all have a different theme so if um if dressing up 
and celebrating the oldest traditions in our land is not your thing fine it doesn't have to be sure. um, maybe you'd rather come stargazing or maybe you'd tr- rather come and learn how to forage maybe you'd rather join a campaign to save a, a woodland that's threatened with development we've got an action coming up in Sussex in September which is in the Worth Forest um, what which date is, is that? Um, the 17th of September Great. Um, it, it's being it's been bought by Centre Parks and they want to basically it's develop. that one it's that one yeah so so there's a there's a, an activist element to that um, we're going to have some some more arty events um, some theatrical ones some that are water based we, we want to touch everybody we want to show sure. that that access to land um, is something that we can all benefit from including the landowners part of my role with the with the right to roam campaign is going to be landowner liaison because I've done quite a lot of work in the, what we call the messy middle ground sure. between um, conservation and environmentalism and farming for example that's another you know area that's become quite tribalized which is really unfortunate yeah um, there's a lot of rewilding messages that has put a lot of agricultural systems off basically yeah absolutely um and i totally recognize that but i also realize that when you get these people together and they really it, it becomes much more apparent when you're when you're face to face and you can mm-hmm. look someone in the eye and they can see that your concern for for nature for, for the climate is genuine then you can start really talking rather than just on social media it's so easy to just you know pull the pin in your grenade and lob it mm-hmm. um from one trench to the other and it just it, it might land you might feel that you've made a really good point that's going to shatter the yeah. opponent's viewpoint but but they're in their trench they're entrenched in their viewpoint just as you are so it's going out and it's meeting in that in that no man's land between trenches meeting in the messy middle and then you realize that you know we're all human we all care we all have we're all motivated by a concern sure um so let's go from that so there are three questions that i ask everybody who comes on the podcast the first is if you could go for a walk or indeed a swim or a kayak anywhere in the world right now where would it be in the book i write about glenfeshi mm-hmm. being um this magical place this is where you saw this salmon is, jumping and you found yes, a body to hide in. Yes, yeah. yes. It's, it's uh, one of the big estates that's being rewilded up in Scotland. Um, and the water, the water of the Cairngorms, uh, I mean, Nan Shepherd writes about it best. And first, the, the, the clarity of the water there is astonishing. And that river that's flowing through this astonishing, resurgent landscape. I was up there in midsummer this year as well. And, um, and we swam a few times. And you can see the salmon you're surrounded by trees and the light is astonishing so yeah that's a that's a pretty special place and there could be more of that you know it doesn't it, it's not that it's that particular spot on the map that's special it's it's what's happening there because someone has willed it sure um the, the landowner there has decided to to let nature come back let the trees come back um and it's all connected so yeah i would if i could go right now yeah i'd probably pop up there for a a dip. It's chilly, but it's beautiful. <laughs> Question two: Who is your natural history hero? I guess I, I, I guess I probably would say Nan Shepherd again. Okay, who is because Nan Shepherd? She, Nan so, Shepherd. So she wrote this book, The Living Mountain, and she was a she was um, also a novelist. Um, but she was a she was a walker. She was a, a a daydreamer. She was a naturalist, but she wasn't the sort of nerdy naturalist. She was an immersive, she, she threw herself into the landscape and into the water and wrote in a way that feels really modern. It feels mm. like modern nature writing. And given that she wrote, she wrote it long, long before it was published. So during the war, she was writing about the, the mountains that she loved. And in such a, a way, it, you can just, there, there's passion in her, but it's not overdone. But she was just so willing to, to sort of be incredibly bodily in the landscape almost as though she didn't you know she clearly felt part of it Mm -hmm. um and a sort of continuity between her physical self and and the landscape um there are some passages where she describes being in water or falling asleep on a mountainside where you almost feel she's become part of the mountain or the land and it's quite it's almost erotic some of it but given you know given when she was writing it's very sensual is that because she didn't come from a scientific background? Yeah, I think it probably is. Sure. Uh, I think, and this is what, why I'm so interested in 
I guess why nature writing is such a wonderful melting pot now because it yeah. does bring in the scientific and the creative and the arty and the people who, who, who you know will express themselves very physically and are very confident talking about about their own sensuality it's a potent potent mix um, and I'm, I'm loving it so I'm loving coming kind of stepped over from from the more scientific way of thinking to sure. this, this much more kind of sensual way of, of thinking and writing um, and she's yeah she's definitely spearheaded that for me I think and finally if you could bring any species back from extinction what would it be I think it would have to be the thylacine because I've dreamt it I spent a bit of time in Australia and mm-hmm. while I was there I had this astonishing dream that I found one okay. <laughs> and it was so and I know lots of people have dreamt this dream um, but I remember in this dream it was pouring with rain finding going to find a payphone because this was back before you know we had mobiles and trying to ring the obvious person f- for me to ring at the time was my um, my former uh, mentor and, and teacher of zoology at Royal Holloway um, Pat Morris and trying to get through on this really bad line to tell him that I'd seen him. I'd seen him. He's, he was a, a, a mammologist, so he was the obvious person to call. Obviously. And I'm, what do I do? What do I do? And it was so, it was one of those dreams that's never left me. Um, just the sheer joy and the the relief that maybe, you know, we didn't fuck it up too badly and they've somehow survived. And I read just recently that they're planning to... Um, I was going to ask, what do you think bring, about that? Ah... <sighs> Was it an American bring, and Australian project, yes. multi multi million dollar project to try and bring back. Bring the them back, yeah. Um, I know some of the DNA is from a sample at a Grant Zoology Museum in UCL. That's so right, yeah. We're having our input in some way. Yes, yeah. Um, the idea of bringing back any extinct species, I mean, it's you know, it's been discussed with others, is what do we bring them back for? Mm-hmm. You know, are we bringing them back for our own benefit to kind of make ourselves feel a bit better, to somehow undo the harm that was done by the actions that caused the extinction? But, but we haven't undone the harm. You know, we haven't undone the ecological harm that contributed to that extinction. And until those forests in Tasmania are safe, and obviously the forests that were once across Australia, then why would we be bringing back an animal to a, to a, a continued but precarious existence? Sure. And it's the same with, you know, with reintroductions, the idea that you can reintroduce an animal to a landscape without first healing that landscape. Um, I understand the desire, um, but I think we probably should focus our energy more on not losing the other species that are teetering on the brink, and we're just not putting enough energy into that. This sort of belated recognition of what we've done, you know, it's like breaking something and then feeling the remorse, rather than taking the care with it in the first place. Indeed. And on that note, Amy, thank you very much. Pleasure. A massive thank you to Amy for taking a moment out of her family holiday to talk with me. And as always, if you want to know more about Amy or details on how to buy her new book or information on the numerous organisations with which she has worked, then head along to treesacrowd.fm, where you will find links to everything mentioned in this week's podcast, including the kappa, the Japanese cucumber naiad that thrives upon extracting human organs through its victim's anus. We will be back in a month, but until then, keep away from the Kappa, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Seriously, go and Google Kappa. Amazing. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 